You're listening to Amphibicast. What's up, people? Welcome back. Tonight, we're going to get straight into it. We're going to talk about the influences that some people have on social media in a good way, people who bring some really positive things to the hobby. And I've got just a man here to talk to us about all that tonight. I've got Mike Titula from Alpha Reptiles, and he's going to spend some time talking with us about pretty much anything that comes up. So, Mike, I want to welcome you to the show. Thanks. How you doing? Good. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. It's always exciting getting to to chat with awesome members of the amphibian community. So, my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, Mike, why don't we get into it? I mean, you're you're on YouTube. You've been a YouTube presence for for quite some time. But why don't we start at the beginning? Why don't you tell us your story? Like, what were some of your first experiences with animals, and what led you to where you are today? Um. It started a long, long time ago. <laughs> I was eight years old when I got my first reptile. Sorry, there's a dirt bike outside. <laughs> it's totally cool. Um, it's totally cool. I was eight years old when I got my first reptile. Uh, it really started when I was like two or three. My parents couldn't pronounce most of the dinosaur names. And even at that young of an age, like two, three, I was able to pronounce all the Velociraptor, the T-Rex, all all the different species of of dinosaurs that I saw in the books. And um, that's kind of where it all started. Obviously, when I was younger, uh, there was all the TV shows of of the greats, you know, Steve Irwin, Jeff Corwin, all them. And they had a huge influence on on me today so that was that was kind of where it started uh, my birth mom i'm i'm adopted so my birth mom actually got my first leopard gecko for me and that striker he's he's still around today 16 17 years later so you've had him for six for 16 years yeah that's crazy my oldest my oldest animal in my current collection is uh, the oldest known age is my california king snake that i've had for almost almost 20 years Wow. And my readier slider, uh, we got around the same time about, yeah, probably probably about eighteen years ago. But I don't know how old she is because she was kind of a sub adult when we got her. So, Mike, tell us about your YouTube channel. Like you, you started it about a decade about a decade ago. What ultimately led you to the decision to focus it on animals and your collection? Well, as I mentioned earlier, um, Steve Rowan had a huge influence on on not only me but a lot of people um it's it's one thing i didn't really want to be my own steve Irwin or or the next steve Irwin, the canadian one <laughs> but uh, i just wanted to reach as many people as i could and learn as much as i could from the internet from friends whoever i possibly could at the time whether i've always been interested in biology and um, that's what I got my degree in at the end of the day. So I was uh, constantly searching for learning about different species of reptile or amphibian or or what have you. And um, my videos kind of started off with simple art uh, and, and just videos of my friends messing around at the age of, of 14, you know. And then it slowly evolved over into the animals and just kind of my journey with those animals so uh, that's that's how it got started 
You mentioned Steve Irwin, and I just, I remember, I mean, I came from that generation where you kind of made a transition from, I mean, if this is going really back, I mean, some of the older guys and gals out there can kind of remember, but there was Wild Kingdom with, um, oh God, was it, it might have been Lauren Green who hosted it, but once Steve Irwin became a presence, you had like presenters who became very, very hands-on with animals. You had Steve Irwin, you had... Uh, to a lesser extent, Jeff Corwin, who has his own presence, uh, obviously David Attenborough, whose whose voice could just narrate, you know, a, a pizza commercial and make it sound amazing. But you got <laughs> <That's great. laughs> you've got all these amazing people out there who have really made themselves a presence in the world of nature and and animals and whatnot. Who were some of your influences? You, you mentioned Steve Irwin, but can you get like can you tell us a little bit more detail about like what about Steve Irwin and was there anybody else who's kind of been like a inspiration to you? Um it when it first started, it was a lot to do with just me kind of doing my own thing. Uh I know Brian Barchek was around at that point and and the very earliest of of YouTube reptile people were kind of around at that point. But for the most part, I just kind of kept to my own lane uh, and, and did what I thought was right or, or what I felt like I could share with the world, I suppose, or, you know, at the time, the, the 20 subscribers that I had. Um, nowadays, though, it's it's changed to a lot of people like we were talking before the show troy has a huge influence on on how i desire to keep and what i desire to keep now uh just his care his attention to detail his mind when it comes you mentioned he's like the bob ross of of dark frog <laughs> keeping and and i couldn't agree more he's got the super chill tonality to his voice and he kind of goes with the flow but i mean if you i know you have for the listeners out there if you guys have the opportunity to ever hang out with troy or, or chat with troy you'll find that out very quickly that he is a super knowledgeable and b an easy or how do i say it i guess that easy to get along with type of guy um but in addition to troy people like bill strand uh, is an incredible influence to me just hearing his experiences over the last something like three or four decades with reptile keeping and, and chameleon specifically is something that i want to emulate and put out there as well because i think that there's a lot of kind of pet tubers i suppose that that really don't have very great care and people like bill people like troy are those kind of people that really do push for high level care, um, as, as Dylan would say. <laughs> yeah. Dylan, if you're out there listening, we, we appreciate your chat, your, uh, animals at home podcast. If you're, if you haven't listened to Dylan's podcast, it's, it's pretty amazing. Dylan is uh, a very big proponent of high level keeping. So Dylan, if you're out there listening, we, we love your show and listeners. If you haven't checked out Dylan's podcast, animals at home network, definitely check him out because he's got some very, very interesting subjects and some great guests as well. Absolutely. Lots of, lots of knowledge on that show as well. Yeah. Bill's bills, bill's been on the show before. And one of the things that I really like about bill is that he's constantly updating his methods, meaning yeah. he's not, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't have static methods. He's constantly, 
updating and reevaluating his care methods and whatnot. And he's just, he, if, how do I put it? Um, Bill's a great guy to go to for information that is current and relevant rather than some people who are, I hate to use the term kind of set in their ways, but there are, there's, there's keepers out there, which I'm sure everyone knows that are kind of set in their ways and they're sort of against considering new ways of keeping. But, you know, in terms of what you said about uh, pet tubing, I mean, do you have, do you have any thoughts about that whole phenomenon? Um, I, I don't think it's necessarily a a positive thing. Um, I, I guess a lot of people might consider me a pet tuber. I personally don't, but, um, it's one of those topics that it's both, I think a positive and a negative. They have a lot of influence in the sphere, but a lot of people with that influence, don't really have the best care and and don't understand a lot of the very basic phenomena that is in the hobby, like UVB, um, proper size enclosures, exposure to different heat gradients and and humidity. So it's overall, I'll say it's a net positive, but there is also a certain amount of negative that comes with somebody with a relatively large following promoting care that, if they were to ask myself or Bill or, you know, his Facebook groups and stuff like that, that might be kind of looked down upon. And I know I'm not immune to it. Like I look back at my old Bill chameleon care and ooh, <laughs> believe me, I wish there's, there's things I would change in the past. Um, thankfully specifically Bill chameleons are, are pretty bulletproof, but I do know that most of my chameleons could have had a much longer life had I cared for them the way I know now versus the way I did back then. So I, I think there's positive and negative to it. Do you ever think that certain channels can be a gateway to better channels? Meaning, let's just say that, and this really goes for anything. I, I don't want to pick on anyone in, in the YouTube community per se, but even, yeah. even with television, you watch something for the sheer spectacle of it, but then it can kind of direct you to a spot that might help you advance as a keeper, meaning, okay, well, I've seen this video of the top 10 tiger shark kills or whatever, but okay, (laughs) I I want to really... I want to really develop my understanding of this subject in detail. I've seen the the spectacle. I want to find the channel that's going to really be educational and it's going to be enlightening in a way that can help me graduate from that spectacle type of mentality one of the things that i enjoyed about your channel is that you don't go through that whole crazy spectacle just to get views and i think that when you have that mentality the the quality of viewership that you get i'm going to assume is going to be more consistent with what you were trying to set out to do in the first place is that is that just me being crazy or, or what no, I think I think you're right. I think it is definitely a, a necessity. Like I I know there's there's large uh, video creators that have millions of subscribers, and uh, I think it does kind of act as a gateway. Um, it it really depends on which one you're pulling from and and who you're actually basing that reference on. But um, they 
I think it depends on the audience member almost more so than the content creator, I suppose, in, in general, because I know myself as, as somebody who is always very curious and loves to learn all the time, I, it, it, I will be that kind of person that if somebody introduces me to something, then I will take that in depth and, and take it further than just, wow, that's cool. I'm going to listen to this seven minute video of this animal that this person has had for, you know, a week and they're giving a care guide of it. That I, I think that does have some place in the hobby. Um, but it, like I said, I think it is on the audience member to have that desire to learn and learn more than just face value, do their own research, figure things out. And, and I think that researching is something that I, I plan to make a video on eventually. Uh, I just don't think a lot of people understand how to properly research an animal. Um, you know, YouTube is the, the second largest search network out there besides Google. And I think a lot of people just hop onto YouTube, search, you know, leopard gecko care or whatever, and, and listen to the first person that comes up from, you know, eight years ago that has it in a plastic bin that's there's no light, there's no real enrichment, there's nothing exciting about it, and uh, that that's a shame, but yeah, I, I hope that answers the question. <laughs> well, that, that totally answers the question. I One thing that, that did just come to mind, though, was... I mean, I'm not, I don't have, I'm not a YouTube person. Um, I did a collaboration with uh, the uh, Exotic Pet Collective, but that was really the extent of my, my YouTube career. But, uh, hey, there's always time. There's always, no, I'm too, I'm too camera shy. <laughs> but um, out of all the people that subscribe to YouTube channels, and let's just, let's just narrow it down the playing field. Let's just say people who are, subscribers to animal themed or we'll just we'll narrow it down even further let's just say reptile amphibian exotics channels how sure. many of those people are actually keepers because I, I know that there's not three million people that are necessarily keeping any any specific species so i look at certain channels and i see that they have over a million subscribers two million whatever it is which i guess really isn't that much you know compared to some other channels, but yeah, it, it's enough that I look at those and then I look at what I think to be some of the more reliable channels in terms of having accurate information and actually being able to provide good care information. How many of those people that are subscribing to these channels are actually animal keepers themselves as opposed to just casual viewers? Honestly, I'm, I don't know if I can answer that. I, I wish I had an answer, but... I would guess it's probably only 15, 20%, if that, that actually keep animals because a lot of the, the trends on, on even moderate sized channels that have less than a million subscribers or, or whatever on YouTube, I think a lot of them do produce a certain kind of content that attracts a more general audience than just the hardcore people that you know might be listening to this podcast or might be listening to podcasts about reptiles in general um because those are kind of people that take it one more step that you know want to 
listen and learn in their car on their way to work or at work as they're flipping papers or whatever. Um, I, I think I'd probably guess 10 to 20% of, of those actual subscribers are keepers, uh, especially in the grand scheme of things, depending on how wide their audience is. I mean, Canada's tiny and the, the market here is minuscule. So I think you have a question about that later on, but, uh, that's, that's my assessment at least. I, I do want to get into the hobby in Canada, but, um, it's, it's interesting what you say. It's just, it's just such an odd phenomenon because the, the further down this rabbit hole that I've gone since I started the show was really trying to get as many people as possible to share as much information as possible. And consistently what I found was that, and this is just as everything else in life is it's much easier to get poor quality information than it is to get quality information. Absolutely. And and I think that it's like, I mean, like we, we kind of talked, everybody knows when I have guests, we always talk for a bit, you know, before we start recording about a couple of things. And, one of the topics that we kind of discussed was like low hanging fruit, meaning going after a certain topic because it's just, it's so easy that everyone goes for it. But yeah, I, I find that trying to find high quality information is, is work. And I, I don't think that a lot of people appreciate the amount of effort that goes into providing like g- good quality information, meaning it, it's, it's, it's easy to just point a camera at, a pixie frog and throw like a rat in there or something like that. I mean, I've seen all sorts of crazy stuff. I've seen videos where it'll be a pixie in a, you know, like a 10 gallon tank and someone will just drop a rat in there and it eats this rat and that gets like 10 million views. And at the end of the video, I'm thinking to myself, number one, why did I watch this? (laughs) And, and and did I watch this for the very same reason that other people did that the fact that it was a frog was secondary. The fact that it was this, this horrific scene was really yeah. what got my attention. And then I think, okay, Absolutely. well, I, I can't blame these people because I just did the same thing by, by sitting through it. Yeah, and I think there's there's always going to be a place for that kind of content on the internet. I mean, there's, you know, that's what gets clicks is the sensationalism and the, the craziness, the, the crazy factor, I suppose, around the videos. Um, and, and I think that... You know, when we're talking about achieving or, or finding information about different animals, and I look at what I do, and, and I imagine probably what you do, is, you know, you, you join Facebook groups, you talk to admins, you maybe make a post there or, or crazy feature. Facebook has the search feature that people don't seem to know about, and, and you can search through a whole group's archive and find, you know all the posts that have whatever crucial hylocraspidopus in it and uh you can try and get information on it i mean i know using that example with the crucial hyla it it is a struggle to find any information and i know you chatted with mike novi and, and you guys didn't seem to talk about them too too much i don't know if that was a target, you know, question of yours when, when you guys were chatting, but you know, I was just listening to that episode and and trying to gain any insights on what he's keeping them, how he's keeping them. I think Dave Kaufman or something did a video at his place and, and showed off the, the cruiser Hyla. And, you know, I worked hard 
to find the information for that. And and so many people are just like, oh, when are you going to make a care sheet? And it's like, you guys, I really hope that you understand that a care sheet is the absolute most basic form of care in general. Some care sheets are much more in-depth than others for a species and and probably not something that you should base the entire uh, entirety of its care from because it's well, it's just that it's a care sheet. You can only fit so much information on a piece of paper or or a couple pages, you know. I I agree with you in terms of care sheets. I just I don't really see how it's feasible to summarize something's complete natural history in a couple of paragraphs. But agreed. <laughs> I, I understand that it's it's it is needed on a very basic level. I mean, at least for someone who is like selling an animal to provide its very very basic needs, so that you have some idea in terms of what you're getting into. Absolutely. They have a place. They have a place. I just think it kind of goes back to, you know, the the gateway of, of YouTube into learning more is that's a great starter. Now use tools like like Facebook or, or admins that have produced them and, and kept them successfully or people like Mike Novi specifically, that kind of deal. Just it's great base now try and build off it and it doesn't even have to be immediately but you know as you learn more or as something might not work quite so well then then you know try and learn more about it yeah mike was mike's a pretty amazing guy i it's interesting to just to answer your question and then we'll, we'll move on but uh sure. i i the video that he did with dave kaufman answered a lot of the questions that I was going to ask him on the show. I want to get yeah. Mike back on because there's a couple of species that I really do want to pick his brain about. But at the time that we did that interview, that video wasn't too old. So I didn't, I just, I didn't want to ask a bunch of questions that he had already answered like a couple of months before, but yeah, that um, makes sense. Yeah. But, but Mike's, uh, you know, Mike's one of those people where he, he put in the work and, Mm -hmm. his experience and his knowledge base about all these different species is a function of that. It, it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort to be able to understand these different species. Absolutely. It does. What, what, um, well, let's, let's just to back up a little bit. Tell us about alpha reptile. Tell us how your collection evolved into, you know, what it is today. And you do, you, you kind of have a small business going on, right? With alpha reptile. Yeah, so it's Alpha Reptile kind of is my own personal brand, I suppose. It it could have just been Mike Titula, you know. Um, but in general, I mean, it's just been kind of a natural progression. You see a lot of people go to expos and, and stuff like that. And how do you support a person, especially on YouTube, when, you know, it's you can make merch around that. You can kind of grow your name in the hobby. And, and that's what I've been trying to do. Um, now that I've moved out to, to Toronto here, uh, my girlfriend and I are, are living together and um, we're kind of building our own thing. Like we have our own website that that is currently up. Um, it's just not fully fleshed out yet. Um, it's called the jungle vault. If, if you and, and anybody else want to check it out, feel free, but <laughs> I don't actually think there's anything really posted in there. We just have the bare bones of the website and, and kind of filler text for most of it, but we will be showing, um, the animals that we have, the, the current projects that we're working on. Uh, I'll be offering like custom tanks and stuff for people. So it, it's, 
kind of has just taught me the very basics of what to do and what not to do and also just growing a, a business i suppose it's i kind of doubt it'll be a full-time gig anytime at all if ever but i mean it's it's always fun to to bring in plants and and help people with the hobby so i guess that's kind of where it started uh, obviously i'm going to be still posting all all my same youtube videos and and doing stuff like that so it's kind of like small batch brewing and i don't yeah. that's that's yeah. that's not my term though because i think i i think i actually did steal that term from from dylan i think but um <laughs> Um, it's okay is, you recognized him <laughs> uh, this this episode is all over the place but it no it's it's a good term because i feel like there's been a lot of mistrust for the very very large businesses that have kind of lost touch with the average person Absolutely. and it at least from my perspective in the dart frog world it seems more reasonable to deal with people who you know you have a you're on a first name basis with this person you've dealt with them repeatedly you know that they have an interest in their animals because they're not necessarily doing this for money they're doing this because they want to produce a better i mean it's a living thing but a better product yeah. for the hobby well absolutely i mean i worked at uh, a a pet store that's only in canada i think um that's similar to uh a couple that you guys have in the states <laughs> um don't know if you want me to mention names or not, but I'll, I'll hold off. Um, I, I, I worked there for, oof, um, I volunteered there for two years before I actually got a job. Uh, at the age of like 13 to 15, I volunteered. And then I got a job, worked there for four or five years. And then I got my car and then I moved to uh, a family owned, but it's actually the largest pet store in North America, the second largest in the world. It's called Pisces Pet Emporium. And um, it, it was interesting to see just the difference between something like a uh, pet X versus this Pisces, um, because, you know, Pisces really hired hobbyists. We have or we had, I guess I don't work there anymore. There's, uh, we have like, uh, over 700 fish tanks, a whole reptile area, um, thousands of different species of fish. And, and it was pretty crazy just to see the, the difference between the quality of people that would like to work there and the knowledge that they have versus those big box stores. And, and I think that it really does show that you can kind of connect with people, like you said, on a more individual basis. First name, you'd have the regular customers walk in. Hey, how's it going? You know, I want to get this UVB or whatever for this animal, or I want to get these fish for my fish tank. Like, what can I get? And, and um, yeah, I think it's important to have those smaller contributors to the larger pet economy, I suppose. I think it matters to the extent that you, you want to base your business model in terms of who your customers are. And of course I, I here in the U S we'll, we'll, you know, I, I actually do want to get into the differences between the U S and Canada, but uh, here in the U S we've got two, at, at least two big box stores where, where I live in, in, in the, uh, the Northeast. And if you read their business plans, which I have, 
their their goal is i mean it's not it's not rocket science but and this this is really applies to everything else i mean even like fast food places and whatnot like if you read their business plans you're going to find out that they are they the people that stay in the store the longest are the ones that they want to keep in the store the longest because they're the ones spending the money yeah so with a niche store that specializes in say exotics or whatnot i mean that's you've already cornered the market as long as you can develop a good relationship with your clients. Absolutely. Because those people are going to come back to you because number one, they don't have an alternative at the big box stores. True. And they're the ones who are going to be spending money. It's, it's, it's just that simple. But at the same time, I like to think that on a smaller level, we can kind of conduct ourselves in a way that we're not losing the point. You know what I mean? Like rather than, I mean, look, everyone has to make a living. Everyone has their businesses and whatnot. I, I totally understand that. I don't begrudge anyone from, for, you know, going from a small business into a big business. That's totally cool. But as long as you recognize that important part of that business, that, that main base, that seems to be the most important. And that's me personally. That's what I like about dealing with smaller establishments. Well, and, uh, and especially on that same note, you know, rather than, being forced for me to sell you this, you know, $50 light dome when you could go to Home Depot and buy one for 13 bucks. Like it's one of those things where it's like, I have a hard time as a, or I guess in a, in a large pet store, you know, they're going to make you say that if you get caught saying, Oh yeah, just go right next door. You can find it for, you know, a third of the price. Then that's grounds to be fired and that's not what anybody wants. You know, we all want to keep our jobs, especially, you know, given the uh, state of the world right now. Um, but if somebody comes and messages me on Facebook, I'm not, I'm not selling light domes or anything like that. I have no vested interest uh, in, in what they buy or, or if I'm making money from it, I just want what their or what will be best for their animal. And, and cheapest you know if you're presented with a hundred dollar option but i say to you what if you want to spend thirty dollars instead for the same or similar product you're much more likely to go spend that extra 30 and provide it for your animal than you are to spend a hundred because at that point you're kind of like oh man you know i'm already spending x amount on on this product so i don't you know what I'll, later i'll put that off for now so I think that that small business mindset is is critical to the hobby in general, like the, the more hobbyists than than the uh, big box stores. I mean, do you have any thoughts on big box store? I mean, I don't know what you guys have up there and we won't we won't mention anyone by name, but it's generally it's generally accepted that you just go there for crickets and dog food and, and nothing else. But do you have any thoughts or opinions on the state of big box in terms of the reptile hobby and amphibian hobby? Um, big box specifically abysmal. <laughs> it's, it's, it's tough to see. I mean, uh, of course, like you said, we'll go into there to grab cat food or whatever, but, um, it, uh, like the grand scheme of things, it's sad walking in there and, and seeing eight leopard geckos in a five gallon tank, or uh, you know the the skeleton frogs, as as your audience would probably know. You walk in, it's like, wow, that thing's on its very last legs because it is 
not being fed properly or it's, you know, a tank being kept in a five gallon with 10 other tanks. And you're like, hmm, <laughs> all right, competition. Do we, do we know what that is? <laughs> it's the Hunger Games. Exactly. Survival of the fittest. <laughs> Yeah, I've seen that the they don't really do that here, but I've seen other locales with big box stores and they have dart frogs. And I just feel like if you have I mean, again, dart frogs are not ex- exceptionally difficult to keep, but they are oh. if you but I mean, it does take a fair amount of 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 discipline and preparation. But I feel like if you have that, you really shouldn't be going and buying it at a big box store. I mean, unless you were that really, I guess, desperate, but I just, I, me personally, I think that there are a lot of species that are best left in the hands of hobbyists in terms of how they're put into the hobby. But I mean, while we're on species, you, you have a decent, you have a decent sized collection. Do you want to share some of what you're keeping now and what species you're, you're presently working with? Yeah, so uh, how long do we have exactly? <laughs> we have all the time in the world. Oh, beautiful. Okay, so... <laughs> within within uh, reason, but yeah. Of course, of course. Uh, all jokes aside, uh, we got 23 different species of, of herps, I guess I'll call them, because we, we do have a couple different frogs and, and mostly reptiles, but... Um, Currently, I'm working with the Almorente. I'm working, that's Ufaga Pumilio for the people that don't know. Uh, the Amirga Basleri. Uh, we got Leptopelis flavimaculatus. I think their common name is the big eyed tree frog. Um, they're an African species of frog that is really, really cool. If, if you follow me on Instagram or anything like that, you'll see a couple pictures of them with their wild eyes and, and crazy calls and such um we do have cruiser hylocraspidopus uh probably one of the coolest frogs out there i'm hoping i'm hoping to get a few more of them and, and maybe get them breeding fingers crossed uh we got some more common species uh, like the leopard geckos of course and, and that kind of deal. Uh, we just recently got a, they're called beaded geckos, I believe is their common name. Uh, they're Lucasium damium. They're a species from Western Australia and they're a wild species. Like they're so cute and uh, so small <laughs> that they're just super cool. Uh, beyond that, we got things like we, I've produced uh, Euromastics. Jerai or the Saharan Euromastix. Uh, the Strawfer ciliaris is another really cool Australian gecko. That's the one that maybe you've seen the picture of the the spiny tail and it's like shooting goop from its tail. I haven't I haven't seen it yet, but that sounds oh, pretty dang. that sounds pretty intense. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to <laughs> link it to you. It's it's quite the photo. <laughs> uh, and then things like morning geckos, uh, plains hognose snakes. Uh, various different creatures, I suppose. We have a huge variety of of species in the room. Which was the first species of amphibian that you ever started to take care of? Um, the first species I ever got was... Actually, I got two at the same time, and they were the... 
uh, Ranitomea reticulata and Ranitomea, uh, I think they're very bilis now, but they were Borgia Ridge at the time. Okay, so you went right into you went right into thumbnails. You didn't even start off with uh, tanks or phylobates or anything like that, right? Yeah, yeah, I went right into the to the Ranitomea. I also got um, where I lived before in Alberta. The all phylobates species were actually illegal, so we weren't allowed to have them. <laughs> yeah, I've heard I've heard that. I couldn't remember which which province it was in. I thought is it is it in Toronto as well? Nope, it, it's legal here. Okay, I must. I'm. I made a mistake because in a previous episode, I did mention that to someone that, depending on where you live, uh, phylobates is good. They consider it a a dangerous species, even though they're obviously not in captivity. Yeah, it shows the 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 wonderful issue that I know you guys as Americans know that uh, there's a lot of people trying to push regulation and and stuff on. Things that don't necessarily make all that much sense, but uh, we can have that conversation another time. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 best discussed after hours. Perhaps yes. we'll do a bonus episode one day. But there you go. How how are you keeping your dart frogs? Like what what from like the ground up? How are you doing builds? And do you have any preferences for certain types of setups? Um, currently, just because of the move, I have well two i guess three of the four frog species that we have are just in the gasket tote bins um they're set up completely naturalistically like they have the substrate all the live plants uh microfauna the, the works um but they are in bins currently that is being changed over to uh custom made glass tanks uh, similar to what you may have seen on troy's channel <laughs> um but my favorite way to do it is is the glass with limited ventilation and having stuff like the exoterras are a good start um they're they're kind of the entrance into the hobby i suppose and then from there you can either be crazy like troy and i or uh, you know be a, a regular person and just buy exoterra tanks um but i set them up with standard drainage layer and then I'm going to be trying out the sponge technique that's super common in, in Europe. And, and Troy has kind of brought to the hobby over here. Um, haven't done it yet, though. So I do a substrate layer. I typically try and stay away from waterfalls in my builds. Uh, one of my most viewed videos is actually a waterfall build, but it uh, it failed miserably. So it was never used. Uh, and people, I, I still get comments on it today being like, well, why didn't you finish it? And stuff like that. It's like, it wasn't worth my time anymore. This is like hours and hours of trying to troubleshoot it. And nothing worked. So, uh, yeah, waterfalls, in my opinion, are are best left to very experienced keepers and, and people who know how that kind of stuff works. Um, but you do naturalistic background. Uh, live plants, whether you use pothos, that's up to you, um, or or you go crazy and buy all the aeroids and all the crazy expensive plants that are, are exploding right now. That was going to be my next question to you was, you, you on your videos, you showcase a lot of plants and I'm not, I, I mean, I only use maybe four or five different species in my builds, really just I've never really ventured into the whole plant world, but what are some of your favorite species to work with and like, how have you successfully kept them? 
Um, I personally like a lot of orchids. Um, I actually just got in a shipment of, of tons of orchids, so a little self-promotion. If you guys are interested and you're in Canada, hit me up. <laughs> um, but uh, beyond that, the, like I said, the orchids are great. Uh, there's a couple different genuses that typically do pretty well. Um, there's Lepanthes, which are uh, a small epiphytic species of of orchid and if you don't know what epiphytic means it basically means that uh they grow on on trees with a relative lack of um roots for uh typical terrestrial growth um but bromeliads of course are are a staple especially for keeping dart frogs and and other frogs uh those are always a good start um some of the more uncommon ones, I, even a lot of the aeroids that are insanely priced right now, uh, they typically do very well for dart frog tanks and, and amphibians in general. It's just that a lot of them are epiphytic and they will grow up the side of tree trunks in the wild. And uh, there's a couple Instagram accounts or if you just Google it, whatever, there's people posting photos of you know, a common one is the Monstera uh, Deliciosa or the, I think the common name is like the Swiss cheese Monstera or something like that. And uh, th I mean, they'll take over entire trees. Their leaves will be 18 to 20 inches in diameter. So they can get massive. But uh, yeah, I think the, the orchids are, are probably my favorite and then bromeliads after that. Bromeliads are always a crowd pleaser. I just, I love my fireballs. It's just, they color up so nicely and they're just, they're just awesome. They're, yeah, it's hard to beat. I mean, as well, specifically fireballs, like they produce pups like mad and they, they grow really nice. They, they're relatively compact. So you're not going to, you know, fill up an entire tank with one bromeliad. I, I, I guess it depends on the size of the tank, but in general, you don't. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a good choice. Do you have lighting preferences for your plants? Um, I personally don't. I've actually, you know, in, in my great abundance of time that I have going, you know, working on YouTube and, and working a full-time job, it's uh, kind of slacked off. But I do really do plan to buy a PAR meter and uh, test out a bunch of the different aquarium lights, vivarium lights, just, you know, shop lights from Costco or whatever, uh, and, and just kind of put them up on on a stage where they can all be assessed similarly and tested for, for plant growth. So I don't personally, um, the ones that I use probably most often are the Arcadia Jungle Dawns. I mean, they're probably the most expensive, but they do produce a whack ton of light and uh, they they grow plants really well. So if you have the budget, then I'd probably go with those. If you're more on, on kind of a entry-level budget or you just have a tank or two, then um, the Exoterra ones, uh, I made a review on their LEDs and... They are actually a lot better than I expected them to be, uh, and they're the right price. Like they're, I think they retail for like thirty dollars American somewhere around there, and um, for for that price, they're they're kind of hard to beat. But 
I mean, in, in general, I know like Troy, for example, just bought a strip light from Amazon that's a hundred bucks for four four foot lights. And I mean, his results speak for themselves. <laughs> yeah, he sets the bar pretty high, but who does? I've I've had a lot of luck with uh Fluval Fresh and Plant, which I I've I bought the lights right around when I got back into the hobby around 2016 and they're still doing really well. I just, I haven't seen that particular model out uh, anytime recently. So I've been cheating and buying. Yeah. I haven't, I haven't seen them around here. So I've been buying some of the cheaper ones off Amazon, but they're just not, you know, I mean, I I have some species that are a little bit on the shire side. I mean, like, I mean, everyone knows erratus, but my erratus (laughs) are kind of shy and uh, I have a newly acquired, um, Philobates bicolor, nice Uraba, and this one is is particularly shy, so I keep that under the crappier lights because they don't give off so much. But yeah, I mean, I just I see better results, especially with coloration on like the the higher quality lights, at least in terms of bromeliads. Absolutely, uh, there's a whole vivarium lighting is is one of those topics that I I know I've made a video of, and I'm pretty sure like i know there's other videos out there about them um but you know there's you can go t5s which typically give a bit of a better spread and a more even light than the leds um but there's also like the sun blasters are are pretty common both for t5 and led and they're reasonably priced and they're quite bright so uh, maybe something you want to look into just just a personal recommendation but uh yeah there's honestly i i would say if you, if you got the budget go for the arcadia they are leaps and bounds brighter and, and a, a more accurate par rating than than the other v- brands available so yeah currently i'm reevaluating my my lighting needs because i do need to upgrade some couple of vivariums that need some better lighting but do just, um, just i don't want to interrupt you but just one more quick point because i feel like we're moving to the next question sure the the sun blasters and the arcadia are linkable so you can have one outlet like one plug into your power bar or wall can control something like i don't want to i don't want to quote it the wrong but it's like six or eight lights so you just kind of daisy chain them together and they all work. That's UVB and LEDs. So that's, that's, that's good to know. Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> I did. Good. I did. Yeah, I did see that. Unfortunately, the way, the way that my, my setup is sort of set, set up like a U, but gotcha. there's not, I don't have one wall. I actually occupy my, my basement. My frog room is shaped a little oddly. Cause I got the boiler in there and I've got some other stuff. So it kind of, actually it's not a U it's more of a zigzag. So gotcha. I, for me, yeah, for me, daisy chaining the lights together isn't really practical. Just I would love it, but I'm not that, um, I'm not set up with everything perfectly symmetrical. So that's been another challenge for me. Right on. I just, just to, not to get off the topic of dark frogs, I did want to ask you something else. You, you know, you keep it Pamilio. Have you, yeah. have you had any success with yours reproducing? Oh yeah. Yep. Okay. <laughs> Which which locale are you keeping again? I'm sorry, I I don't recall from when you mentioned it earlier. Currently, I just have the Almirante. Um, I do have a buddy out back in Calgary that is um, 
has a couple of different locales on on hold for me. Uh, I have the El Dorado on hold, and I'm hoping to get the Uyama River as well. Have you ever tried the uh, the clay substrate trick, which is kind of becoming popular now, keeping springtails on clay so that the Ophaga froglets can pick up a little bit more in the way of calcium from them? I haven't yet. Um, I'm I'm looking to move that direction or at least try it with some of the new froglets that I get from these new pairs. Okay, let me know because I just I don't keep, I'm not currently keeping Familio. I haven't kept Familio in, in a couple of years, but I just started a springtail culture on clay, and yep. I'm looking to see. I mean, for anybody out there who's not quite familiar with what we're talking about. The conventional way of keeping springtails was either keeping them on a like a soil or cocoa fiber and leaf litter type of setup and then seeding them into other cultures or keeping them on some sort of a media like charcoal, like like horticultural charcoal. And now the rationale is that you can keep them on clay that's been. I guess what would you? How would you describe it? Like, uh, um, like inoculated with um, calcium. Yeah, and like different vitamins. Yeah, like like enriched. Like when you buy bread at the supermarket, yeah. it's got minerals added to it, almost almost like that. And the idea is that I mean, I'm sure there's familiar people out there who are like laughing at me right now because they've already done this. But I'm just I'm just curious to see how it pans out because I just started a culture on clay, and I just wanted to see how they develop and if anybody else has had experiences out there with keeping them on clay i think i think troy was the one who told me about it but if anybody else out there has any input on it i'd, I'd really like to hear it yeah i think i, I know there's a couple of people that i've talked to and in, in my personal sphere that that are starting it now um but don't have a long track record i mean even when i was keeping uh like raising the the froglets and such up i had pretty good success without it um, I, I obviously I'd need to kind of compare the two to see if there really was a marketed difference between the, or I, I guess observing what the results actually are. Um, I mean, if it's something that provides some benefit and, and is healthier for the frogs, then I am hundred percent game. <laughs> yeah. It's difficult to quantify at this, at this point, I guess. I mean, I'm yes, sure there's people yeah. out there who, I mean, I'm, I, I know that there's people out there who have had success with it but i'm just curious yeah. and it'd be interesting to see how it pans out in the next couple of years if that kind of becomes the new standard of of keeping but i mean at very least um, if it doesn't harm them <laughs> it's just an, a, another tool to add to the tool belt yeah it's just clay and i'm i'm sure we'll end up paying top dollar for clay at some point in the near future <laughs> probably yeah do you um do you have any thoughts on substrate i mean what do you, what kind of substrate are you using for your frogs um, I kind of make my own, uh, recipe, obviously, as, as I know you've talked about and I know you're familiar with, but kind of based off of ABG, um, it's doesn't have the, the tree fern fiber and such because that is super hard to source in Canada, but it, it's a similar consistency. It's very airy. Um, there's a moderate amount of nutrients in there and, uh, tends to raise the frogs good um i will put on a layer of leaf litter just to cover it so the frogs aren't swimming in their own uh, dirt i suppose uh and obviously the, the leaf litter does provide a lot of microhabitat for the microfauna and and for hiding away as well so 
yeah, that's that's kind of my general mix. I don't know if you want me to get more specific or not. I can if you wish, but it's a trade secret. Everyone everyone has their own their own mix. It is, yeah. I, yeah, I was I was explaining. I, I mean, I was having a conversation with, um, well, when I I did a collaboration with with Richard of the Tarantula Collective, we were yeah. talking a bit about substrate, and uh, most dart frog people, especially, we tend to make our own substrate. So, I I'm kind of at a loss to explain to people the you know what I mean in terms of like how how to you know. Like, why should you shell out $40 on a bag of substrate that you can really source yourself for, like, maybe, like, 15 And, and yeah. people kind of look at me like I'm crazy, and it's like, look, I just, you know, we all kind of make our own. It's just sort of the way that we do it. Yeah, it's 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 the true hobbyist. I mean, obviously, all those pre-bagged ones have their place because, I mean, a lot of us use those bags as, as at least a supplementary or, or in our mix, but uh, it's... Uh, you get more customizability you know there's the the companies that make that brand of of substrate and substrates in general they're they're looking for profit like they're not going to be putting in all the best ingredients and all that kind of stuff because the vast majority of people don't care <laughs> it's it's the the weirdos or the the fringe keepers the hobbyists like us that that uh take that and are like man i think this needs more drainage or i'll put in nutrients with this aqua soil or you know i'm gonna do this to make it drain more it's it's a it's a chef's kiss to to our hobby <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's a good way of describing it i mean i had i had gone through three different types of charcoal and i still the the first the first brand I got, I don't, I don't want to say where I got it from, but that was like the the golden goose. I got the most production out of that charcoal. And wow. when I, yeah, and when I seeded other cultures to different brands of charcoal, I just, I didn't get the same productivity. And then I realized like, okay, well, you know, it may just be a, a coincidence or the entity that I got this charcoal from might have been very very purposeful in their their selection to maximize their productivity so yeah but but you're right it's it's it ultimately comes down to such a personal choice i i personally can't i can't in good conscience advise someone to spend top dollar on a substrate that's really something that they could make themselves i mean i i guess you know, at the end of the day, some people, I guess, they're not comfortable on it. You want to pay for the convenience. I, I can, I can buy that, but I just don't. I, I can't get behind having a product shoved in my face and told that it's the only option. When in reality, I, I know that it's just, it's just not the case. Absolutely. I mean, coming back from my retail experience days, it's you really do have to judge whether you know, you can kind of throw out some feeler questions and see, okay, is this person, you know, wanting to spend this extra time, effort and money, or, or in the long run, you're probably saving money, but you know, effort and time to source these different products. Or do they just want to have that bag on the shelf and, and get them, get them on their way? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I know. I agree. And it's the same rationale with keeping frogs in, in, in Rubbermaid containers. Like I, I have, 
I've kept frogs that had some, they had some different issues. They either needed to put on some weight or they were really, really shy or they have a hard time acclimating. And you keep them in, in an opaque Rubbermaid container, which is the same size as a 10-gallon tank or a 20-gallon tank or whatever. You still set yeah. it up the same, the same substrate lighting. It's Maybe the lighting's a little bit more subdued. And you, you realize if someone came in, you know, they could look at, like, you, someone could come into your frog room and look at a sick a sick frog in a beautifully planted aquarium and then look at a perfectly healthy frog in an opaque Rubbermaid container and say, well, that's the one that you're keeping incorrectly. Yeah. You know, and it's yeah. just, I don't know. That's just, this is, I guess this is going to be an episode of rants and, and, and tirades <laughs> and such, which I always, I always pride myself on avoiding, but I guess this is, right. this is going to be for the hardcore listeners out there. I guess so. Yeah. I want to know about the hobby in Canada because here in the U S we have our own dynamics and I'm just curious what is the exotic? I mean, we'll, we'll limit it. We'll limit exotics to reptiles and amphibians. What's, what's the hobby like in Canada? Um, small and, and I don't know if juvenile is the right word. That sounds condescending, but to a certain degree it is. It's, it's very underdeveloped in a way that, you know, we're, we're behind the American market because so much of the stuff is either prohibitively expensive to get from America, or there's just not enough keepers in, in Canada to have the expertise and the i guess the hobbyists that focus specifically on a species or a genus of animals or developing color morphs it's a lot more of kind of that i guess pet shop mentality of you know i gotta breed these corn snakes and i gotta breed these king snakes and all that kind of stuff there's there's not a whole lot in the way of variety um like I, I help out with uh, Ashley, uh, the Northern Lights reptile imports when her imports come from Europe and and all over the world. And uh, we see all these animals that are that are brought into Canada and like 70, 80 percent of them just go, you know, they're they land in Canada. They they we establish them here, uh, make sure they're they're doing OK. And then we ship them to the States. <laughs> it's like, man, we have all these crazy species that are quite reasonably priced and it's, you know, in our hands and out the other. It's it's sad to see, but um, I think it is slowly evolving. There there are people that that do focus on on some of the weirder things. Uh, but but in general, it's small. I mean, all all of Canada's population is basically the size of, of a New York area or an LA area. Like that's the entire country of Canada. I just, I don't know. Maybe it's just the way, I mean, I'm, I'm from New York. I'm from the big, probably one of, if not the biggest, you know, metropolitan areas in the country. But I just yeah. kind of assume that Canada is not that different from us. It's just, you know, it's a little bit farther North, but I mean, you said you lived in Alberta for a while, right? Well, I mean, my whole life until this year. <laughs> okay, okay. I'm sorry. I yeah. No in, ter in terms of like being in Alberta, I mean, there's not a tremendous amount of people in Alberta, right? It's kind of like a sparsely populated area. Um, it's I I guess in the grand scheme of all the provinces here, it's it's lower population. Um, it does have I think the 
third or fourth largest city in Canada. Like there's Toronto, there's Vancouver, and there's Calgary. Um, I think Van- like Calgary, where I'm from, has around 1.4 million people. So it's it's a fairly decent sized city, but I mean, compared to things like like New York Metropolitans and stuff like that, it's oh, that's you know three apartment buildings here. Yeah, that that's there's in like the, the county that I live in. There's more people than that in this in my county, yeah, which, which is exactly. about yeah, which is about maybe ten 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 miles north by ten miles east west. But oh my, my 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 question is, if you're in the hobby there, I mean, how are you? How isolated are you from other keepers? Like, if you can't get on social media or you don't have somebody in another area, is there like a community within that area where you can you know you you can get fruit fly cultures from? You could maybe swap a breeding pair with someone? I mean, do you really have to go out of your way to try and find somebody else who's in the hobby? It really depends on on what specifically you're talking about, like what species you're, tra- you're you know, focusing on. Um, the Thankfully, I, like I said, I lived in like the third largest city or top five for sure. And um, they, they're was enough people to where there was that camaraderie. Thankfully, I know understory or enterprises has, uh, you know, a a very, I guess, kind of a stronghold. Uh, Like they almost started the dart frog hobby in in Canada and in North America in general. Um, But uh, there's jungle jewel exotics out in, in Calgary and they're, I guess the second biggest dart frog producer in, in Canada for sure. And they, you know, if I needed cultures or anything, I could go to them, but other species it's, it's tough. I mean, if you live in Saskatchewan or, or Winnipeg or I guess Manitoba in general, there's, those are very, very sparsely populated provinces. And I, if it wasn't for their crazy laws, restricting a lot of, of exotics in general, then I, I still think it would be very difficult to find that kind of camaraderie or, or teamwork that could go into, you know, ah, crap, one of my cultures crashed. Does anybody have anything? What was it like moving from, I mean, you, you moved your whole collection from Calgary to where you're in Toronto now, right? Uh, near Toronto, yeah. Okay. How was it moving your collection? I mean, that's that's quite a long car ride. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was. It was wild. Um, I I can go into it if you want. Sure. If, if, yeah. Yeah. So, um, kind of a story of how it all went was, I you know leading up to the to the move, I shipped my reptiles and amphibians all to my girlfriend here in Toronto. And uh, she just had like temporary setups, bins, that kind of deal, all set up for them, ready to go. Uh, they they landed here. Unfortunately, I lost one of my lizards. Um, I don't think it was a shipping complication because they're all in the same box, and you know my Pumilio and my Cruzio Hyla and all those sensitive species that you'd kind of expect to go first were all still alive. So um, I'm not really sure what happened there, but. Um, shipped them out. They landed, I guess, for the most part, okay. Then about a week later, I I did do it with a moving company. I I just paid a, a moving company to come and move all my stuff. It was 
basically one room's worth. Like I still live with my parents, so I didn't have a whole lot of furniture or anything like that. They came, cleaned the room out in like two hours. It was pretty crazy, actually. <laughs> and then the next morning, embarked on my drive. Uh, thankfully, I, I brought one of my best friends, uh, Ryan. I, I know you're not listening to this, but I'll, I'll show you out here. Uh, he came with me on the drive and basically was kind of my co-pilot. The first day, we made it to Winnipeg, where... Uh, halfway through my drive, I got a, a message on Instagram from some dude named Dylan, and uh, he's like, "Hey man, you wanna you wanna do a podcast?" And I was like, "You know, I've been driving for 16 hours today. Uh, I think Ryan drove for maybe an hour of it, and uh, but you know, uh, sure, let's do it." <laughs> and so he came over at like 8 p.m. and we recorded the podcast for his podcast, and it was awesome meeting him hanging out and and just getting to chat with you know another hobbyist that is quite knowledgeable on on a various different subjects and from there uh we woke up like 5 a.m the next morning 4 a.m something like that drove well like 28 hours straight we 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 didn't stop it was <laughs> it was nuts i it was under my kind of control because I did do most of the driving as it was my car, um, but uh, we stopped a couple different places. It was, like I said, like 28 hours of driving, and altogether, I think it ended up being around 38 to 40 hours total driving. Um, yeah, it was it was a marathon for sure. <laughs> what did you do with all your vivariums that were well established and planted did you just kind of stick them in a truck and have them meet you there or like did you break them down um i I did break all of them down is that right uh no there was my tinctorious tank at the time i actually kept set up but i just brought it like i i just had recently in the last year bought a, a rav4 an older rav4 and I just lo loaded up the trunk with all my plants and that vivarium and then like the super valuable things like my my desktop computer and stuff like that I, I kept with me. So that's a full loaded trunk and a long drive is basically how they came. Uh, I, I took out all the plants and all that stuff. Uh, I had I think like six plant bins with me essentially of just all my various plants from my house that uh, I stuffed in the car and, and drove. It sounds like something I would have done. I just, I guess it's just, you know, what, what do you do? You just kind of keep everything that you can and just hope for the best, I guess. Exactly. And, and, and like, I, as kind of stands to reason, I did sell what I could. Um, I sold my Cresta Gecko to one of my good friends from university. She was looking for a pet and I said, Hey, you know what? Like <laughs> I've had this gecko for something like eight, eight years. And it's not something that I really see myself keeping in the future. And I'd love it. If, if you want it, then, then it's yours. And she agreed to take that. Um, I sold off my Pumilio vivarium, uh, with most of the frogs, but I kept back a pair for myself. Um, 
yeah, so I, I kind of avoided myself of what I could and then just brought what I absolutely needed to. Yeah, I'm done moving. I'm 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 set. So certainly across the country. I mean, it's it was a a, a long haul and I don't know if I really would have done much different looking back on it now like hindsight because I'm not sure there's much I could have changed. Uh, I mean, the service of packing and stuff like that, it was insane. Like two guys showed up and I had all the tanks already and everything that I needed to bring or wanted to bring with me, all my supplies, all that stuff was already all in boxes. And it was in the car or in the big truck and, and on its way in, I think, under two hours. Like they broke down all the racks. They got all the tanks outside and boxed up and cardboarded and it was wild. Like I just sat there and I have some pictures of me in my room and the progression of, of, you know, a full room with all the tanks. And then there's a picture halfway through me kind of breaking down and removing all the substrate. And then there's a picture of it completely empty and it's crazy to see. Yeah. People don't give movers enough, enough credit. The amount of time and, and being that methodical is, is, definitely a skill that's underrated absolutely yeah one thing i wanted to ask you i mean just just to get back on the the, the youtube angle a little bit so something i was always curious about is is well number one you you're i saw your your recent video with your i guess your new room and you're very organized everything is very very well set up etc what is the appeal behind room tours and feeding videos why does everyone go absolutely like nuts for those I mean, as kind of the the theme of this podcast so far, it, it's I think it's a, a good thing and a bad thing that they get so many views. Uh, I know when I first started, that was kind of a thing back in in you know a decade ago. I guess, man, it's crazy to say, but there was people showing videos of their rooms and showing their animals and you know sharing their names and stuff like that. So I watched those videos and. I think based on my own experiences, it's kind of opens your eyes to the hobby itself. Um, as, as a beginner, you are looking, you hear, you know, the, the big box stores, Oh, here's a crested gecko. Here's a leopard gecko. Here's a green tree frog or, or whatever. But when you watch somebody's collection and they're walking through and, I mean, I'll I'll pride myself on on having a quite diverse collection of things that aren't necessarily super common, and uh, it, it'll spark your interest, or I know it sparked mine. So I think that's kind of the main attraction to it is is that it is exposing you to all these different possibilities, and instead of this green tree frog, you can get a snowflake white tree frog or some weird coloration of Pac Man. Uh, that kind of deal. So I, I, I personally think that that's why they're they're so popular. Uh, on the why, I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. I know from a business standpoint or from a channel standpoint, a channel like mine, uh, not trying to brag or anything, but just to throw some numbers around, uh, I have about 70,000 subscribers. And typical stats on YouTube are that about 10% of your audience should be watching per video. And so uh, my average video that's not a room tour 
gets only about maybe a thousand or two thousand views if it's a more broad video. Uh, but I mean, the reptile room tours will get 15, 20, 30,000. So it's, it kind of sucks from my standpoint that I built most of my subscribers off of, of these room tours, but they're fun. I enjoy them. Uh, it's, I think it's kind of a, a status that a lot of people aren't willing to do is show off every single tank in their room, show their animals, that kind of deal. It's, it's super common for other content creators and, and pet tubers or whatever to kind of exclude things, uh, whether if it's intentionally or, or not intentionally, they'll show, you know, here's my six geckos or whatever, but they'll take them out and show them. They're not going to show their actual tank or how they're being kept. It's just kind of, this is Huey. He's my little gecko, or this is, you know, Dilbert. He's my Pac-Man. <laughs> Dilbert? Kind of a, I don't know. I feel like that's an a adequately derpy name for a Pac-Man. <laughs> Dilbert. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's kind of the the my thoughts on, on Reptile Room Tours, at least. I mean, they are, I'll admit, they are entertaining. And it's it's nice to see what somebody else is doing because it's it is a great place to be able to kind of pick someone's brain without actually having to talk to them because yeah. uh, especially I could see it to like a younger keeper or someone getting involved in the hobby you might be intimidated to ask someone in person and I mean YouTube does kind of convey a, a sense of anonymity because mm -hmm. I mean no one necessarily needs to know who you are to comment on a video or whatever but yeah it, it, it's it, it is a very easy way to see what somebody else is doing and then hopefully learn some, some tips that you can incorporate into your own husbandry. Yeah. And well, I guess I'll ask you, why do you, you watch stuff like that? Like, do you have, do you know why? That's a good question. Um, I guess for, I guess for a few reasons, the first reason is number one, it's actually relaxing to look at someone's room. That is, I, I like symmetry. I'm a, I'm a very big, the, the irony is symmetry doesn't really exist in nature, but no, <laughs> I, I, I like things that are well thought out and well planned and well executed. So, I mean, just, just to keep like harping on Troy Goldberg's channel, but like Troy's room is everything is symmetrical. It's well planted. It's, it's well planned. It's well executed. It's satisfying to watch because it, it, it's just, it's relaxing. It's like going for a walk in the park or, you know, or whatever it is that people would like to do. I mean, sometimes you look at your own room and you think to yourself, I'm not happy with the way this is. I, I want more light in this section. I want to put automated misting on this section here. It's this constant work in progress. And I think that looking at someone else's room tour gives you this sense of completion. If that makes yeah. any sense. I mean, is that like, yeah. wh why would you watch them? Um, kind of like what I said, like it's, I, take things that most people especially at where i am in the hobby now is i look for the systems the lights the uh man troy's getting uh, his fare of of gassing <laughs> up here I, I know i'm gonna hear about it later but uh he's he has his little like light guards on his tanks and most people don't think to put those on but they completely remove that harsh source of light over top of his tanks and it's genius. Like it's stuff like that, that some people might not pick up on, but 
other people do. Um, I know one of my friends here in, in Toronto, who hopefully I'll make a video with soon, uh, he has his whole, he, he does like old Rachidactylus or, or New Caledonia species. Um, and he does them all on a button mister. Like they're all automatically timed. They're, I believe it's a Miss King, but he just presses a button and it missed for 30 seconds and, and that's it. Uh, he has another switch where he can switch it to a hose that stretches throughout his whole room so he can manually use RO water to mist his animals individually. So if, you know, this one tank needs a little bit extra or this one's shedding, something like that, he can just go do that manually. There's no hauling a mister around the room. It's a simple flick of a switch and then press the button down and it's misting. <laughs> yeah, that's just so, that's so perfect. But you're right. That's the kind of thing that you, that you look for. Yeah. If yeah, that's a good question. Well, you gave a good answer. I hope I, I hope my answer <laughs> was okay too. If uh, let's just say you had to pick one species, and it it can be anything. It doesn't necessarily need to be amphibian, frog, etc. But if you had to just pick one species that you could only work with for the rest of your life, which which species would it be? Ooh, work with for the rest of my life. <clears throat> um. Does it, there, can I give like a a top three to five? No, no, <laughs> no. I'm just, I'm, of course you can. Yeah, you can give me a top five, a top three. Okay, so reptile wise, um, if it's a snake, I think I would probably choose emerald tree boas or Boland's pythons. Uh, if it's a lizard, I would choose the Varanus macrae or the blue tree monitor. Or um, some of the dwarf species of chameleons um, from the Bradipodian genus. Just phenomenal, like incredible species to work with. Uh, Amphibian-wise, I actually have had the pleasure of working with these before. Um, but the Histrionica redheads and the blue histos are two dart frogs that I will never take for granted that I actually got to work with and I will forever try and, and buy some at some point in my life. The, I like the blue histos. Those are really pretty. Yeah. They're incredible species. Like even over camera and on YouTube and stuff, it just doesn't do them justice. Like seeing them in a, in a big tank and the way they walk and interact with their surroundings is just, it's so cool. <laughs> What do you think sets the obligates so far away from other species? Because obligates always seem to be held in the, the highest regard. Obligates specifically, I think it's, I think the rarity does have a certain appeal to them, especially for hobbyists, because it is kind of that holy grail of, you know, you can go to any store and grab an Azurius if you wanted. That's not, undermining the beauty of an Azurius. It's just, you know, they're everywhere. But for something like the obligates, their behavior, uh, like I said, the, their locomotion, all of that just kind of culminates in this crazy looking frog that is unlike pretty much anything else available. So I, I think that to me, as, as somebody that, you know, only has Pumilio, <laughs> uh, is relatively un uncultured in that aspect. But like I said, I, I did get to work with 
some of the larger obligates. So, and I've seen Troy stuff too, which is always a, a pleasure. Yeah, I, there's, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's plenty of other people out there too who do work with obligates. It's just that I think Troy's channel gives them the most exposure. Absolutely. Yeah. Where do you see? I mean, here here in the U.S., I don't want to turn this into a whole referendum on, on U.S. legislation here because we have some we, we have some different laws than you do in Canada, pretty obviously. But yeah, where do you see the future of the exotics hobby going in Canada? Staying as far away from politics as I can. Um, honestly, I, I think it's uncertain. If I had to say it in one word, I think it's uncertain. Um, I think it's an opportunity for us as a community, as amphibian hobbyists, as reptile hobbyists, whatever you are, you do need to support your your local authority, whether it's US ARC or, or CanHerp or whatever. Um, this is a time that there is some scary laws that are potentially on the horizon. and and I know a lot of people think, oh, well, it doesn't affect me. But the the point of this is to stop animal keeping in general. If you don't think that your cats or dogs are under fire yet, yeah, you're right. But yet is the, the key word there. So I think that in 10 years, I optimistically, I think it's just going to keep growing and, and explode. I mean, especially with the the global... I guess pandemic. Um, there has been an explosion of keeping, and I mean, you could argue whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but in general, there's more people being exposed to the hobby, and there's that alone will breed more hobbyists than than anything. So, I'm excited for the future, but like I said, I think it's kind of uncertain at this moment. Cautiously optimistic. Yes. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here in the U.S., it's, I mean, look, I'm, I'm 41, okay? I've been doing this since I'm 11 years old, and I've seen it from the point where it was just the Wild West up until at least, to me anyway, it, it reached like a golden age, like around the early 2000s, where there was a lot more available than there had been in the 80s and 90s. And then I kind of got out of the game for a while, and now what I'm seeing here is just... Uh, I'm I'm at a loss to express how 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 everything just exploded within the past maybe ten years. I mean, yeah. I, I I've seen species that I never in my wildest dreams thought that I would ever see for sale. And you Absolutely. you guys have one over in Canada, the uh, the Fijian iguana. You you'll never see that species here in the U.S. Never. Nope. Yeah, we well we. Legislation. Or thankfully, we, my girlfriend and I own one, and they are an incredible species. And I, I get that on the video all the time that I posted, like, oh, you know, I'm going to buy one. I'm like, well, not if you're in the U.S. Yeah. Nope. Nope. <laughs> so I, it, they're one of those species that is just remarkable. But, yeah, legislation and, and stuff like that has just squashed them. So if you were to give advice to – a beginner or, or a young, let's just, let's just say a younger hobbyist, someone who okay. is going to be the future of the hobby. Mm -hmm. What, what advice would you give this person in terms of how to keep the hobby alive in a way that is responsible 
and at the same time also sustainable for the future? Like what, what words of wisdom would you give to that person? Ooh, um, I would say start slow and assess what you want to get from the hobby. So that is, you know, are are you looking to be somebody who is a very wide, diverse keeper that keeps a lot of species? Or are you going to be one of the people that hunkers down, just does dart frogs or just does a certain species of lizard? Or, you know, are you going to be a more niche kind of breeder? Um, I personally can't answer that for anybody because... As much as I think like, oh man, I, I really just want to do dwarf chameleons. It's like, but there's so much other cool stuff out there that I would absolutely love to own and love to reproduce because they're not all that common in the hobby. And, and maybe they're not my, you know, main shtick or whatever you want to call it. But uh, there's just so much variation out there that I, I, like I said, I think start slow, assess what you want. And and really do research. <laughs> like if you're if you're a budding hobbyist, then you're probably already on that path. But talk to people like yourself, Dan, or or like me, or you know uh, other people that have experience. And and I know it's tough to to reach a person like uh, the people that have hundreds of thousands of followers and stuff on various social medias. But the hobbyists like you, like me, like Troy, that kind of deal. We're the ones that, A, typically aren't busy enough to where we can just ignore all of our DMs and stuff. I know I reply to every single DM that I get. And, you know, you form relationships from that. You form those points of contact of, of okay, well, you know, oh, this person I've been talking to has experience with this species. Let me chat with them to see if... I want to move that way or not. So what, what advice I'm curious, what advice would you give to a budding hobbyist? Oh, um, <laughs> flip the question. <laughs> I know. Um, I guess I would have to, I, I don't think I would have one answer. I think it would like, like yeah. you said, I think it would depend on what that person is aiming for. And I think the first thing that I would do is I wouldn't give advice on something that I wasn't familiar with. So if, if someone, I mean, when I was younger, I was under the impression that, okay, if I knew how to care for a green iguana, I knew how to care for anything. And that's wrong. That's, that's, that's BS. But that was the conventional line of thinking at that time, because people who had experience were generally not people who had, you know, they weren't scientists. They weren't studying these things in the field. They were, they were reptile dealers. So they had to be a jack of all trades. So I would say to myself, well, look, you know, what are you planning on keeping? And you want to, number one, you want to understand that animal's natural history. You want to understand where it comes from, what it does, what its nature is, what its requirements are going to be. And are you up to the commitment for it? Because starting out in the hobby at say 11, 10, 12 years old is, is great because you can get a certain species that's relatively hardy or whatnot. And you could have that through your adult life. Yeah. Whereas with a dog or a cat, I mean, dogs and cats, maybe 15 years, you know, tops, um, ready or slider. I could, my kids could inherit it from me. Absolutely. So I would, I would really have to ask that person, you know, 
ask like ask yourself what do you want out of this hobby every day from now on because if mm -hmm. your mind changes tomorrow or the day after then you probably aren't ready for it yet because it's it's the long-term commitment that's i think what really really throws the game off is because when people get tired of it or they get bored of it i mean that's cool i understand stuff happens that's 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 life but you know it's one thing to downsize your collection it's another thing to say all right well i got all these frogs i'm in it i'm just you know i'm selling everything or i'm letting this radio slider go or i'm gonna let this king snake go or whatever i'm gonna dump yeah. this anaconda in a parking lot and that's where it gets bad and i think that that's that's the that's the thing that you should really nip in the bud from the beginning is say look you know what focus on one thing right don't get empty tank syndrome focus on one thing when you can master that then you move on to something else but that's that's just that's just me and ask and ask over and over and over everyone you can find in terms of what their advice is read scientific papers read some veterinary books you know get a handle on every aspect of this thing's life because you know what it might not be healthy 100% of the time something might happen that you're going to have to troubleshoot and if you can't troubleshoot that there might not necessarily be someone else who can and that's yeah. why you want to mentor with someone hopefully who can guide you accordingly absolutely i think that that's that's a very good answer <laughs> i try i try but hey everyone has their own opinions you know it's it's i think absolutely. that as long as it's productive and it's and it's positive i think that's really the best place to go but either that or honestly i said someone just don't get involved get 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 into classic cars or or, or um or knitting or uh, basket weaving or gardening or or collecting can I don't know whatever <laughs> just go do something else because this is a, this is a rabbit hole you don't want to go down. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, you I'm sure you've seen those memes where it's like I got my kids into fish tank keeping so they can't afford drugs. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's very true. Um, well, I mean, we're kind of winding down, but before we wrap up, I mean, you you're starting you're starting a podcast of your own, correct? Hopefully, yes. Um, still in the beginning stages. I've been talking about it since Dylan's podcast, but uh, yeah, it's just carving out the time to to get it nailed down. And and I'll probably launch it along with with the website. Uh, maybe record a few episodes, kind of have them in the bank, and then and then drop it all when the website launches. Cool. I mean, what kind of topics and whatnot should we be looking forward to? Um, it's gonna be similar to to most i suppose it's just going to be me chatting with uh i haven't decided if i'm going to do a co-host I, I don't know if it's going to be a reliable showing from them or not <clears throat> troy um <laughs> but uh they it's just going to be a lot of interviews sharing my experiences i would like to i mean maybe it's just me but i like to listen to podcasts and hear what the host has to to say about the pot about a topic and specifically and i like that that's what you do with your show is you know you'll do a a substrate video or you'll chat about x y or z and it's just you just your experience and and you've been in a lot of, you've been in the hobby a lot longer than i have but i feel like i picked up some tips and tricks along the way so i just like to to selfishly interview people that know more than i do so i can learn <laughs> basically what it's gonna be <laughs> that's exactly the same reason why i started this show because look man you know what no one's an expert 
You know, there's there's there, there's there's expert though there are experts out there, but you know what? Yeah. There's always someone you can learn from. It's like I think like what like what Homer Simpson said, it's something like um he's like no matter what you do, there's always somebody out there better than you. And it's it's true. It is true. Absolutely. I mean, just, uh, even the expert had a mentor or had somebody they looked up to and that's that's just the facts about yeah. it. <laughs> Very true. All right, everyone. I want to thank Mike for being my guest. It's been fun. I know tonight was kind of a more relaxed episode, but I think with everything crazy going on in the world, we we deserve it. So uh, if you haven't already done so, I mean, I'm sure you have already because his YouTube channel is huge. Check out Mike's YouTube channel. Check out his stuff on Instagram. And Mike, you're on, you're on Facebook too? Or I'm not on Facebook, so I don't know. I am, yeah. Like I have my personal account and I also have my Alpha Reptile account. And there's also the the Jungle Vault, like the new website account as well. All right, good stuff. All right, everyone, I want to thank you for joining me again. It's been real. Take care of yourselves. Catch up with you guys again soon. <laughs>